Hello, and welcome to Movies We Dig, the podcast about film, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Colin McCormick. I'm Elijah Fleming. And I'm Christy Vogler. And today we're digging up The Sandman, a 2022 American fantasy drama Netflix series based on the 1989 to 1996 comic book run written by Neil Gaiman and published by DC Comics. Uh, And we have two also special announcements. One is that uh, for the first time, uh, everybody in the room is a doctor. Congratulations, Dr. Fleming. Uh, Yeah. And our second major announcement is uh, now this for our first episode of what is sort of tentatively our third season, although we're very informal about that, slash unprofessional. Uh, Joining us today is a super special guest, Dr. Kira Jones. Uh, You might know her uh, if you're active on Twitter and sort of the classics Twitterverse. Welcome, Kira. We're really glad to have you. Great. Thank you. I am super excited to be here. And we'll just start off with our regular, we're a little rusty, but we're going to shake off the cobwebs. And we'll start with just our regular question. Kira, did you dig this series? Oh my God, yes. So much. So, so much. I I was a little bit nervous for this episode because sometimes the, the hardest stuff to talk about is the stuff we like because we just kind of end up going in a circle being like, yeah, I thought it was great. I loved it. Uh, and then like, it's easier to dig into like, you know, the stuff we don't like because there's so much mm-hmm. I can kind of sink my, my claws into. So I'm looking at my cat, so I'm just running with, with cat metaphors. And I just watched the <laughs> Calliope episode. But, but, but so Kira, are you, had you read the, the, the comics before seeing it? Are you a Gaiman fan at all? What's, what's your sort of history with, with this, um, this series? Yes, to all of the above. Um, I have uh, read the graphic novel, seen the show, big fan of Gaiman's work in general. I love American Gods. It's one of my favorite books. Uh, another great show also. And I, I think he's probably one of the best Lovecraftian style writers around his short stories are really really good and of course i mean he's super into mythology which i am as well and he knows this stuff so it's always a plus yeah and and this is it's connection to i guess classical antiquity or ancient and you know it's there but it's it's one piece among many but really i think what i was sort of interested in talking about is really this new game and and this show's particular relationship to like myth and and particularly the the process of adapting myth um, but I'll, I'll just go around the room. Dr. Fleming, what do you think? We're all doctors here, but I'm just going to remind Eli of it. <laughs> Thank you, Colin. No I I read the the first volume of the graphic novel way back, like in college, like when I read Watchmen at the same time, it was like a phase that I went through. And I wish that I'd kept going and that I'd read more of the volumes because now it's, I think I would like it more now it was just sort of uh, on the list of like, okay, that was cool. And it didn't super stick out to me, but I adored this show. This was so much fun. (laughs) And I like, I think I saw so many tweets that was like, no thoughts, just vibes, just Sandman vibes. And I'm like, (laughs) yes, that is, that is how I feel. It's like, it's not necessarily that there's a plot that I need to follow. It's just the atmosphere and the vibes. And also the vibes of like a My Chemical Romance concert circa like 2009, <laughs> you know, like when, when he comes out, yeah, when, when Tom Sturge comes out and he's got like the the, the waxen face and, and the hair, you know, and I was like, yes. Um, but Yes, it's like, it's my, my little high school heart is beating very, very fast for this. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, I think I also dug this quite a lot, but I think Christy, you were also a big fan of the comics, right? Um, actually, I have not technically read the comics, but I love the DC universe. And so I didn't 
quite connect right away that it was connected to DC until Constantine showed up, but it was a woman. And I'm like, Constantine. And they're like, an exorcist slash magician is like, this is a lot like DC. And I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. So I, I enjoyed that. And it was very much coming at the show, I guess, just with not knowing the the comic background for once for me, which was interesting, um, was really cool because it didn't feel steeped in DC. I think the comics are a little bit different. They start pretty connected to the DC universe. And this one was just a world of its own that still felt nostalgic and familiar, which was really cool. And my vibing is especially like Morpheus through the ages when he's visiting with the one person. Yeah, I want to. I want to talk about the Hob episode. That that might be my favorite. But but on the like the note, because yeah, this this was published originally as a DC comic, and in the original run, it, it had a lot of like DC characters, like Scarecrow shows up, and I think one part Martian Manhunter has like kind of a cameo, and so lots of changes that sort of happened between graphic novel and 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 show, and some of them were you know for for the medium which we, we can get into but some of them i think were just licensing issues right because like you can't you know if you know which characters certain parties have the rights to and thing like if you're going to have scarecrow or martian manhunter that opens up a whole like legal the, the getting into like the rights battles and rights histories of comic books is a fascinating subtopic in and of itself that i could go off on uh but yeah actually so maybe we can we can just start right there with just this I think like both textually and meta textually, this is really kind of a work about, well, it's a work about a lot of things, but I want to talk about like this as a work of adaptation um, and particularly as it relates to like myth, because, you know, when many of us sort of talk about or teach or, or lecture or whatever on mythology, you know, one of the things that I like to really sort of hammer down is that mythology is really a, just a long history of adaptations. And so just our thoughts about like the show's approach to adaptation, the things it changes or what, what it thinks about, and even just the idea of like myth making in general. That was like a really big question, Colin. That wasn't yeah, really I don't, I don't pull my punches. We go right for the <laughs> we go right for the juggler. I kind of liked that there wasn't an overarching like there kind of was like the big storyline, I guess, that kind of does get wrapped up kind of in the last episode the tenth mm-hmm. episode, not the extra episode but for a while it's like it feels like the story is going in a bunch of different directions and like they're i feel like they could have continued on in a lot of different stories like nothing is nothing felt super closed and i think that feels to me quite a lot like like ovid or something Mm -hmm. uh where it's like there are bits and pieces that are jutting out from the center tree and they all have like these main themes that might connect them or similar characters or people that pop up but they're not necessarily all following the same narrative arc Mm -hmm. um and so just as a work of like mythology i thought this worked really well in that vibe (laughs) yeah i am i definitely uh agree with that and one of the things I noticed as I was um, rereading the comics is that, you know, this is a show that manages to be incredibly faithful to the source material, but also be radically different in a lot of super interesting ways. So, like, we've got the DC characters in there. We've got Joanna Constantine now. Um, we have a bunch of uh, gender flips, race flips, and they all work perfectly. Mm-hmm. I mean, Death is probably my favorite casting ever. I loved, loved. Yeah. Yeah, Kirby Howell Baptiste just nails it. Absolutely nails it. Uh, and then you've got David Thewlis as uh, John D, who should be Dr. Destiny. 
absolute 360 from the comics. Mm-hmm. You know, in the comics, they have him as this desiccated, you know, mummy guy who wants to actually rule the world. And then, you know, we get John D in the show who has been corrupted by this Ruby is probably not an Arkham. I don't think we ever really find out what that kind of corporate looking building is. Yeah, yeah. he's just in some like, uh, private basement prison in Buffalo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then like his whole thing is that he hates people lying to him, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which again, completely different from the, the graphic novel. Now, I think what really works well with those changes is, you know, something that we see a lot in mythological adaptations as well. You, you've got those core elements. You've got Morpheus here. He's the dream Lord. You've got him interfacing with humanity, but like so many adaptations, you know, there's a different kind of moral you know, there's a different theme that the showman runners want to get across. And I'm not entirely sold on this, like 99% sold, but I, I really think that what, you know, Gaiman and the other writers want to talk about this time is kind of the nature of humanity. You know, mm-hmm. it's not as black and white, good and evil as we see in the graphic novel. I mean, John D, for example, you know, he's got all of this trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got all of these psychological issues. He is very childish and, yeah. and childlike in a number right. of ways. But we've also got Morpheus, who goes from being very standoffish. And can I just say that Tom Sturge's ability to convey emotion without actually moving his face mm-hmm. is <laughs> remarkable. So good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, I, I did not know how they were going to do that with Morpheus, because, like, in the comics, he's either, like, deadpan or deadpan and angry. <laughs> you know, it's, there, there's two Morpheus modes in the comics, but, you know, Tom Sturridge really just turns that into humanity beautifully. And, you know, the way that he kind of, you know, uses that, you know, very minimalistic sort of expression to convey his new opinions about humanity throughout the series and how his understanding is evolving um i think is also one of the big themes that ties in with the whole you know are humans you know afraid are they selfish you know are they worth saving yeah really and this is just kind of like just you know the the question of even media like the 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 problems with adapting for the medium right because there's so many things about sandman that you know sandman there's been attempts to adapt Sandman over over the last 30 something years. There's one in particular I want to talk about, but we'll get to it later. But, you know, there are strengths to, you know, there's some things that are difficult because people are wondering like, how do you do this? Or how would you do this? But then there's also strengths to bringing it into live action. I feel like we often complain, particularly with things like mythology, where like, you know, we find that animation or drawing um, tends to really lend itself to the fantastic in that. But in this case, like, like exactly here was saying, like the way that you can get emotion out of an actor, the way you can't necessarily get out of just a, you know, the way Morpheus is drawn on the page um, uh, or just the other dimension, and even just the sort of the, the softening or the humanity that the show is bringing to these characters. Like John D. like one of the big changes, again, spoilers, is in the comic, John D. murders Rose, Rose, no, not Rose, Rosemary. sorry. Uh, Rosemary, sorry, not Rose, Rosemary. The, the good Samaritan who picks him up. And then in, in the show, he gives her the amulet of protection and it kind of softens it. But then that's a great sort of setup because the very next episode is the infamous... 24 7 the diner one which even just his you know the idea of the the central conflict to my mind there is d's struggle is really just with like with myth like d doesn't like myths right 
because he sees them as lies and this idea of dreams or myths, I'm kind of using them a little fluidly are lies that we tell it, you know, we delude or obscure or something like that. Whereas Gaiman, you know, just in through his whole oeuvre is a very pro myth person, right. And like believes in like the power of myths, dreaming, literature, art, et cetera, et cetera. There, there was something very meta, especially this conversation about like how this is about humanity and that's what I really liked about the episode with death is that Morpheus is felt like he's lost his purpose. He's lost his, you know, he's completed this quest and it was kind of exciting because he had something to do for once and had forgotten his original purpose. And it was kind of the recognition that death is like our purpose is to serve humans. And he's, he's kind of relearned that, but in doing so that's when we, it doesn't look like use change. It doesn't seem like his behavior has changed over much, but it is a significant change that is noted upon by people who have known him for a very long time. And I feel like sometimes that is our idea of myth and adaptation where like, you know, for a long time and where this podcast could have been is just like, here is the myth and here is how they deviated from it and therefore got it wrong. And it ignores the whole point of myth is to, to continue to evolve and reflect the society from which it's told. And Neil Gaiman has done that beautifully. And the showrunners here did it beautifully. Not to like throw shade on a fandom, but I'm about to, but like, this is a problem. This is one of my big umbrages I take with like, particularly like Lord of the Rings fandoms, which get really invested in like the canon of the work or the idea of, of Tolkien as some kind of prophet or like, you know, he is the voice of God um, and then this text is scripture and it we cannot change. And maybe there's a whole other thesis I'm thinking of, of, you know, you know, Judeo-Christian religion and its influence on our ideas about like canon, orthodox and heterodox, whatever. But like where that fandom in particular, at least to me, gets really obsessed of like, you know, they really want like a good adaptation would be a very, very true to the original material adaptation, which like Christy's just saying, it is like misses the point of storytelling sort of at large that game and you know i think really understands very very deeply and very like uh empathetically so on like the line of storytelling do you guys have a favorite episode that you like could pull out from the show uh, or like... Gadley. yeah <laughs> i knew i knew what yours was called yeah no, um... <laughs> no notes on the on the um comic side like a favorite I guess, character interaction that has sort of come through. I'll continue with my, my death one, because I think that besides Kali the Calliope storyline ended up being my favorite, because I also thought it was a really interesting discussion about our, like, humanity's relationship with death, in that, like, it's a pretty terrible one nowadays. Like, we try to remove ourselves so much from death, and this was such a beautiful representation and like it was really hard to watch because sometimes it was really beautiful and it felt complete with the very first person they visit who playing the violin and he's he just he just wants a moment to say his prayer and then and then go on and then you go later to the infant in the cradle and death just saying i know it was too short but it's time to go now like it was it was so heartbreaking to watch and but it was so inevitable and soft i loved that portrayal because it, it was meant to show that like death is necessary and death isn't a horrifying thing that we should be running from that we should be trying to trap into a little glass bubble and all of this kira favorite episode 
Ah, oh, you're gonna make me pick one. Jeez. I mean, yep. you can you can hedge or, or pick a couple. That's fine. There's no wrong answer. Uh, I mean, the death episode is definitely up there. It's just so beautifully done, and you know, I, I agree with everything that you said, Christy. You can see the diner episode be like, because I'm a sicko. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Calliope was also a favorite, and my personal hot take is that since. The actress was the same person who did the voice acting for Cassandra in AC Odyssey. This is totally a crossover we can make. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so, yeah. We, we, we're going to uh, apply to the, was it the Amy Pistone logic of, of canon, which is if an actor is in one thing and, and another thing, then both things are a shared universe. Yes. There yeah, we go. The, okay, the Mummy like... and the Fast and the Furious movies are in a shared universe. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, I can go with that. That works for me. But, yeah, I guess if I had to pick, like, a favorite favorite um i really liked the hell episode okay mm. me too me too yeah we should yeah let's talk about lucifer <laughs> okay because i think lucifer is maybe my favorite like character interaction and i love mm. that like it just it's the wizard's duel from the sword and the stone where they, mm. they're like battling each other in these like, weird forces of nature and i love it so much and i adore gwendolyn christie as lucifer she was so particular and like the way that oh it was beautiful no words although like i liked how like all of her her like curls were like perfectly formed on her head like in the way like you'd see in like a statue yeah it's like she walked out of like a raphael painting or something exactly yes great yeah she's like a bernini come to life yes yeah (laughs) I learned that the the origin in the original art, so death in the sort of Lucifer in the comic is kind of androgynous. Is actually modeled after early David Bowie with oh, like kind yeah. of the perm or something like this. So yeah. look- oh well. <laughs> and I think he commented on like pronouns too. It's like Lucifer's preferred pronouns are we, <laughs> <laughs> the royal we, the royal we. Yeah. And I'm like that checks out. That, that checks. checks. Out. <laughs> yeah. I loved how even just like just standing still she looked so imposing or it, it looked like that painting or it, it was like the image right out of the comic book it was just like mm-hmm. that very scary but like very particular image of those wings was so perfect or even in like the very first what's the demon squatter bloat or so, uh, something mm-hmm. like that when that guy <laughs> shows up like, to be aired again and i'm like oh i know that reference okay oh i love oh, I, I, I love uh <laughs> the rhyming demon <laughs> yes mm-hmm. yeah uh, and and the idea like that first cave like the whole like the, the entrance to hell is just like made out of people it's very very dante yes for sure uh, kind of going back to the comment because we we have said this before and colin brought it up again where we you know, visually, especially for Greek myth, sometimes it seems animation is a better way to go to get off these fantastical elements without looking corny or cheesy. And it's like props to this because, and that's just it, you don't necessarily need a bunch of really cool special effects to like have these personifications feel larger than life in a lot of ways. So I was really impressed with that. Like even probably the fight with Lucifer was the most impressive in terms of like, oh, they're like duking it out, but it's in such a understated way at the same time. Yeah, if I can say, I I like this version so much better than the one in the novel. You know, the one in the novel, it was, you know, almost understated in a way. And this just like blew everything into epic proportion. 
yeah as, as it was happening I, I was i was sitting watching i'm like and like eli said i'm like oh it's the the, the wizard duel from from sword in the stone and yet you know you're going from you know it's like snake to, to horse or like wolf hunter snake falcon bacteria life and then it's like and then it's like how do you beat anti-life and he's like dreams mother <laughs> but again like we're falling to the trap that i was afraid of of just being like yeah love it great love notes. it love it <laughs> well i think as we're talking about it i'm thinking about how that sort of even ties into the calliope episode of the thing that can beat anti-life is this hope that we have and like this hope for the future and mm. at the very end calliope was like no i have to forgive him because like how else am I supposed to move on like and have any sort of future after this? Um, and so I think there's so much of forward looking that happens yeah. in this show that I think is kind of beautiful in a really touching way and something that I haven't seen in a lot of the very, very cynical and perhaps appropriate like media that has also been recently coming out. But it's it's dark, but it's not it's not pessimistic there yeah it's like we have we see despair but um she doesn't take up a lot of screen time i guess and you know even though like we sort of said some of the episodes are part of maybe a larger kind of narrative structure and some of them are like the death or the hobgabbling or the calliope or just kind of little bottle episodes that can exist on their own but they're all like thematically closely linked because they're all about one like storytelling but also this idea of change and even forget like so much of what dreams process is, is is forgiving people and calliope says like a thousand years ago you would have you know you wouldn't have even looked twice or, or helped or or this you know like death is is growing from his experiences um as are other characters and like galt is the is the perfect example which was a new invention and this is i think a great case of where an adaptation can really go beyond above and beyond the original material galt is kind of a a new addition but the sort of the themes going around with that you know can a nightmare be more than a nightmare you know, maybe I want to be a good dream or something like that. Can I bring happiness into the world? And an older version of Morpheus would have been like, no, you're a nightmare and you either be your nightmare or you get deleted. And, you know, reformed Morpheus is like, I can, you know, we can change. I guess that brings me to a question I did have because the one kind of ending that I don't know if I was completely satisfied with, and I don't know that it's an ending for sure at this point, is the Corinthian in terms of he, he, you know, he's kind of shown to be the very first antagonist and like this is who Morpheus was out to go deal with and he's become problematic in the human world. And then the leap to him being like, I was really thrown when Bowling Green made the comments like, oh, and he's got this cult of followers now. And I'm like, I thought he just showed up at this conference for a bunch of serial killers and it, it didn't connect to me that the Corinthian in his actions in the human world is what had created this cult of serial killers that have only become very predominant in the last 130 years. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. But then where I lost it was what exactly was the original intent that Morpheus had created him with? Because he, you know, there's this idea that nightmares serve a purpose not to lock us into fear, but to give us a chance to face those fears and grow past them. But it's like, I don't understand what the Corinthian was supposed to be in the original intent then and how it went so wrong, basically. Ooh, I stumped people. <laughs> no, I'm just like... I... I'm just going to, in the editing room, I'm just going to add in that, like, the old sound that the dial-up computers would make, like... <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think the Corinthian is such a terrifying 
bad guy because I mean he's he's got teeth for eyes. Yeah. yeah. No, he looked horrified. I'm like if you see interviews with Neil Gaiman, he's very like coyly. Like one of the weirdest things is that Boyd just actually has teeth for eyes. Like normally he has to put these little prosthetics on, but it was perfect for this role. You find a guy with actual teeth for eyes. No, I mean I feel like yeah, that's like that's such a classic just gut reaction jump scare nightmare vision of just like something is terribly wrong with this and like there are things where they shouldn't be and that's just like i feel like such a, a human gut reaction of like no <laughs> absolutely not <laughs> it's a case study in the abject yes and so i i wonder when you have like a jump scare basically that tries to become more and that's sort of how I've always thought about the Corinthian as this just like thing that people would immediately just be like, no, trying to sort of think more deeply about his own purpose and maybe going about it in a, the wrong, well, like the right way for him. Like it was terrifying and horrible, but like. <laughs> it's almost like a, like he's almost like an Ultron or like that kind of classic science fiction trope where you, they create the thing to do a thing and it, it it's interpretation or it does the thing so well, or it like brings that, that it's, it's prerogative to like a, the logical extreme, which is like, no, not like that. But what is he supposed to do? To frighten people, right? Or to bring in sort of fear or necessary fear. And he kind of perverted. Um, the Or like, I don't know, maybe maybe Morpheus designed him sort of flawed. And then the Corinthian is like, why did you design me flawed, my man? <laughs> uh, and then, but he's like, but I still want to live. Uh, you know, he, he's almost like he's like a Frankenstein's monster in that sort of situation, yeah, right? Yeah. Where like, Corinthian can't help how he's made. So does the fall lie with Corinthian or his creator? Luke here, I might have an answer for us. All right, uh, I looked it up, so sweet. Thank you for Sandman Wiki for this. Um, according to the wiki, uh, his original design, which was in the Corinthians' words, I believe, to be a black mirror made to reflect the darkness that humanity could not confront in itself. Uh, Dream later recreates him with some changes, so the exact nature of these changes is not explicit. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm gonna, I'm going to stick to my Frankenstein thesis. Yeah. Well, us at our worst is serial killers apparently like, also i i just gotta say serial con just like when, I, when the minute yeah. i saw that was how i was like love it love that idea so much from like like a convention for serial killers it's like that i mean that's so fun and like there's different panels and i was having flashbacks to like conferences and things like oh, that yeah. and it was like the panel yeah. of like uh, there there was like the religious serial killers there was like the gender disparity in the serial killer microcosm yeah that was terrifying and hilarious no. Yeah. Yeah, and also like some of the most terrifying characters also in the series are not nightmares or demons or or the literal devil. It's it's you know Funland, right? Yeah. The yeah. who's so deeply upsetting and, and or even in the Calliope episode, the um, Richard Maddock, like he's yeah. he mm -hmm. does like horrible things just for fame and glory, mm -hmm. basically, and like he's not a nightmare. He's just a regular human being. Yeah, he's almost scary because he is so easy to imagine. Like, so that is the one you can easy to run into. And yeah. yeah, that is. I mean, I guess maybe we can pivot to the, the Clappy episode, which is the most sort of overtly in our sort of professional wheelhouse. But the idea of like, you know, your relationship to the muses, right? Because in, in in Greek literature, particularly, like, usually like a poem will start out with like, the muses came down to me and they and they bid me to sing this song and 
you know, Hesiod being like sort of famously the first to like invoke the muses and Homer too. They say, uh, uh, Derek Jacobi says outright, he's like, oh, she was Homer's muse. It'd be good enough for you. But the idea of like, yeah, the relationship, like the artist and the relationship to the muse. And also maybe like, this is kind of a, this is a dark dimension and, and, and content warning, but the idea of like artistic creation as like a form of rape that episode is sort of getting into. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that, I mean, there's a lot to unpack with this episode in particular. We might talk about the kittens too, because that that was like the worst oh. part to me was the kitten yeah. scene. I like um, had to walk away from my computer. I, know. I was like, I did not think that I was going to be having this many feelings right now. <laughs> like, yeah, like I, I have no. blocked that part out in my memory. Mm-mm. So it, it just caught me off guard. Yeah. Like, yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Now I remember this and I still hate it. Yeah. yeah. No. Well, the the thing I found interesting is like at one point Calliope seeks out Hecate, who I also love as a character and how that was done and how like it's not even just Hecate, it's not just the fates, it's like any tripartite goddess being that we've come across being all in one basically which was really cool yeah it's the fates the furies the norns the three witches from Macbeth. like they're all like like shifting i mean very it's very jungian you know these like this archetype of the three women and i think it's what the maiden the mother the crone Mm -hmm. um new game is super into that like that archetype Mm -hmm. a lot i like that it kind of drew this connection that there aren't that many gods actually they're all human remembrances and imaginings of like a limited amount of people but and so that brings kind of a universe that universality to you know all of the stories that are ever told but okay going back to where i i was the the fact that they point out that orpheus or not orpheus also i feel so stupid that Orpheus and Morpheus connection was like only brought to my attention. Having I, I wrote this. it down. It was a very Aragorn son of Arathorn moment where it's like yeah. Orpheus son of Morpheus. And I'm like, oh God, <laughs> really? His, oh, and, how did I not see that? <laughs> his less talented brother, Borpheus. And um, their, their imprisonments, you know, almost for the same amount of time. And I thought it very interesting that Morpheus maintains this stoic silence for all of that time and kind of you know doesn't give anything up what has been given up is just something that's already been physically taken from him and he can't really do anything about that but calliope is also imprisoned and not physically restrained in the way that morpheus is but she keeps losing her gift to these men who take it from her like the taking is very physically from her and i thought that was a really interesting gender dynamic playing out right there of two different types of imprisonment and what humanity wants from them and how they go about getting it. I don't know if I have much more to say than that, than it was like very stark to me how that played out. And I think we also run into the nature of these rules that keep coming up in the show, like the rules that like not even the endless can get past and these really, really stupid humans who try and take advantage of that, which I mean, we also see in mythology a lot uh humans thinking oh yeah i'm gonna get one over on the gods because i'm so smart and then it completely backfires very satisfyingly too like when his fingers were bleeding and it's you know all over the walls it's like good (laughs) okay yeah he he gets he gets a very karmic punishment right where it's he has too many ideas um he goes from having no ideas to he's just like he be i I wrote it down on my notes as he has pitch fever he just can't stop pitching (laughs) (laughs) but i think it's like there are yeah, so many stories of mortals just like you stepping on a god's tail or something. And sometimes it's 
um, maybe not that warranted, like the the reaction that they get. And sometimes it is so, so satisfying to be like, don't stop being awful, you terrible, terrible humans. <laughs> My question, I guess, this temptation, I guess, really about it, like, what if you had a muse? Uh, it's a very Faustian Ooh. kind of thing. You know, and you can see the, the transgression where at first, Richard Maddock is like, this is f***ed up. I don't want anything to do with this. But then he's so desperate for the status, the glory, the renown, the recognition, you know, that he, that's the Faustian kind of deal that this episode really deals in. I think um, something that was interesting is, you know, there's a mention of like, you know, you're supposed to woo her um, in like, but I don't know, this proves more effective in, in my opinion. And I thought that was a really interesting distinction about how the Greeks definitely viewed these supernatural beings and how other groups did. Um, I actually read for my Roman Civ class a really interesting point of like how early Romans believed that if you do all of these things perfectly correct, you'll make the gods happy and they'll do what you want, as if there's some element that you can control them. And when the Greeks kind of, as a culture, get more um, introduced to the Romans, they have this very different perception that, you know, these are beings and forces of nature, which no one can control. All you can do is just thank them when they're nice to you and then get out of their way when they're not. And it's very, very reflective in the mythologies too, where like, I can't think of a lot of times that a Greek version of the myth is like, oh, I can do something to get a god in my pocket or get this being in my pocket versus, you know, making deals with the Fae and like being having rules applied to interactions between mortals and immortal beings. There's they're seen in other mythologies, but it doesn't feel as present in the Greek. The only time you get even something remotely like that is Prometheus tricking Zeus and it, it still doesn't work out because Zeus knows the game and lets it play out the way he wants it to play out. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could argue that the whole thing with Zeus and the Iliad about how, you know, it's fated, I can't intervene. Yeah. Um, or like, once I give my word, once I swear on the sticks, I can't go back on that. But that's, that really seems to be much more like God to God interaction rather than God to humanity. I never thought of it quite that way. And I, I like that idea that, that, yeah, there are these very flexible rules or that there are only certain situations in which there are like, laws that bind things like I think Calliope says at some point like there I'm bound by this law and like law that I didn't make and it's and it's a human invention basically and and law is such like a a human thing Mm -hmm. that's constraining these otherworldly entities and I think that is such yeah back to I guess if we had like our own muse or like making that deal Oh, that's such a wild thought, Colin. I feel like I would have let her go at the very least. I'm like, and she's like, then pray to me. As if, yeah, like, I'm like, do well, this, that's think how we should do it. Like, you're free. <laughs> you think like, yeah, you, you, you let her go. But then if you let her go, are you still secretly expecting some kind of quid pro quo or something like right, that? And like, what right. if you get nothing? Or, oh, yeah. And that's like, that's the, that's the anxiety. My other the sort of thought about this episode is is about just like, are book parties just when you're a famous author or is it just everybody holding your book talking about your book around you while like sipping on their <laughs> gin martinis because and i also want to talk about dramatic too it's just like the parody of like that pretentious writer guy 
also, actually, this is a question I actually do want to talk about the sort of performativeness of that author versus their actual life. Just, you know, the way he kind of, you know, he's so insistent in, in public about like, we need to, the cast and crew have to be at least 50% women and people of color. And, you know, and I consider myself a it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Versus like, oh yeah, by the way, I have a woman trapped in my upstairs bedroom. Yeah. Where does the female voice come from? The woman in my life. I'm like, accurate, but... <laughs> but <yeah>. also... <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that felt, that felt very much like a commentary on just life in general <laughs> in a very sad and scary kind of way. And I almost wonder if if Richard Manick is like not to not to get too much into like a tour theory or anything like that, but is he like the dark gaiman? <laughs> like so, like in the very beginning, the first thing we see him talking about is is about like character comes first. Everything has to stem from character and character decisions, which to me feels like a very Neil Gaiman approach to writing, right? Because so much, I mean, this is a great example, but like so much of his writing is so character focused. I mean, all of these episodes, in a sense, are really revolve around the characters and their lives and choices and things like that. So he seems to be preaching the, the sort of the new game and gospel. Um, but then he's, he, he's made this sort of dark deal on the side to get his, his pro his success in his. Um, so I don't know, not to like it too much until like it all comes back to the artist, but like, is there some kind of dark relationship between Richard Maddock and Neil Gaiman? Well, it, it brings me back to the question too, of the, the author who originally had Calliope but with her still in his possession, he had already fallen out of vogue, mm -hmm. basically, and he can't get any of his books, which Not were to put on your own name. Sorry, I know, uh, which were inspired by a muse, and now they can't get in print. And I'm like, is that kind of you know one of these trick? gifts where like mm -hmm. yes i give you inspiration but it's inspiration that will not last the ages sort of a thing yeah. and what does that mean then for matic where like he's the big thing right now and i i thought it was interesting that joe rolling got mentioned yeah. in that book party of just yep. like once she's gone and done inserting herself in the creation of the wizarding world is she going to end up standing the test of time because like already with those interactions and her personality like there's a lot of fallout and people not reading her books anymore because she continues to make it more problematic than it already was right yeah i did sort of think that that was gonna kind of come back to bite him sort of in the ass i guess the yeah. when richard maddock has that interview and she's asking him about the other author she's like yeah, you know erasmus, i think you're yeah. yeah i think you you know erasmus fry like that's how, how kind of i see it and he's like oh what and you could but also of... it's very telling that the author he name checks are like uh margaret atwood mm. and yeah um, octavia butler and yeah, yeah he's a performative feminist absolutely he's like a, he's like the josh whedon of the literary world <laughs> <laughs> yes it was a terrifying episode. <laughs> I like needed to go eat some cookie dough after that. I was like, this is awful. Kira said this kind of right in the beginning of like a thing that this series is so good at is that kind of cosmic horror where like real horror is not necessarily like a guy with eyeballs or sorry, with mouths for eyeballs. It's like trapping a woman in your bedroom so you can have, you know, be a successful author or these like sort of dark inner lives or like, you know. Or being caught in a lie. 
being mm. caught in the lie like that was the most nerve-wracking thing with rosemary is like okay she's mm. scared and she's explaining you know sometimes we lie because we're scared and right and but it's like yeah i can remember being a little kid or even like you're kind of trying to get out of trouble and it's like okay it's just a white lie and it won't come back to get me but there's a very strong fear that it will and it's mm-hmm. yeah and maybe i'm not to shift away from calliope too quickly but it was just this this relationship between lies and dreams and myths right where, where like they are i mean this is, seems very shakespearean where like is is acting or art is it just a lie you know are actors just liars I don't know, yeah or, and we get to see shakespeare to yeah yeah he's morpheus inspired so i think you yeah. could definitely make an argument for that absolutely too. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah which just comes back to the that amazing sequence of hobbs life <laughs> which i love yeah i i like it that's just fun but but i think also like this is a very sort of mythological take where like in mythology very often a lot of the sort of mortals who suffer or people who suffer are, are ones who sort of overly devote themselves to sort of one facet of life or something like that they get overly attached so i'm thinking of like huh. for example pentheus and the bacchae or hippolytus mm-hmm. i mean i'm thinking mostly euripides mm-hmm. plays but like you know those are very much about individuals who you know, whether it's Pentheus is so adamantly against Dionysus or Hippolytus is so adamantly pro-Artemis and anti-Aphrodite. And D very much fits into kind of, to my mind, like a Hippolytus or a Pentheus figure where he wants a very, he wants the world to be no lies, right? Which on the surface seems like a good idea in the same way that like Pentheus being like no drunk orgies or <laughs> um, Hippolytus being like, you know, uh, I, I just want to hunt and not get married and, and things like that, which seems sort of or noble or logical or makes sense at a certain level. But when sort of taken to an extreme, then you, you, you know, because then like the whole diner episode episode is basically like what if we take this no lie thing sort of to its extreme ends and everyone's just like just maddening you know and the the sort of societal value of like those little white lies that christy was talking about yeah well and and morpheus has the same exact problem right yes Um, i was gonna say i think there's so much of this is about extremes mm -hmm. because he he after the guy who imprisoned him dies the magus tywin lannister yeah after he dies (laughs) the son goes to him it's like because he made a mistake he killed the raven and he's like can you just promise me that you won't hurt anyone if i let you go and morpheus remains silent he can't make that promise because he's so bent on correcting the wrong that was done to him Mm -hmm. someone has to pay and he could have been free and and in the the comics the way morpheus punished it i think in, in the show he gives him eternal sleep right mm-hmm. um and in the comics he gives them some kind he basically gives them like a perpetual nightmare yeah which yeah i there's i'm like seeing all of the extremes now as we've been talking of like the corinthian is the perpetual nightmare he's like you know one nightmare might be useful but constant nightmares create serial killers and like yeah death is necessary but like so much death is is you know not gonna help the world and so like lucifer and hell is like so much of that it's like yes it's fine in in its own borders and they're trying to grow their borders it's like all of these extremes Mm. and calliope and richard maddock are like the you know extremes of uh greed or you know wanting all of these things and and the roads that that leads us down. Ah, oh, I'm like 
ah, this is so cool. <laughs> Again, I'm on just the circle of this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, and not to bring it back, but I guess now I'm gonna I'm gonna use it to pivot uh, ever so subtly into my favorite episode. But like the extreme of like, what if you could live forever? Yeah, yeah. What if you? What if there was no death? What if you just kept going? Oh, so I love that. It's so it's it seems like a very. It seems very new gaming to be like some character or even very Terry Pratchett for some yes. character to be like, I'm just going to not die. And all of his friends are like, okay, good luck with that. And then it just so happens that an immortal being is overhearing this conversation and he just doesn't die. And I just, I just love the thing that, that, that put that episode over the top for me is when they had that first meeting and he shows up and, and, and death's like, so how's it been? And you think it's going to be like, oh, it's like a waking nightmare or something. He's like, it's brilliant. I love, I love living this long. It's fantastic. I just love like all of the small things that he loves about being human, especially in like from the 1300s to the 1400s. He's like, oh, my God, chimneys are awesome. Or like, yeah. Did you know that we have enough food now or like, oh, my God, life is crazy. And then even after, I don't know, it's either like 16 or 1700 where he's like lost everything. He's like, I'm at the bottom. The only where like place to go is up. Like I have so much to live for. Like what a wonderful, wonderful thought i love that I, I love that he's also very invested in his bromance being like oh no the bar is closing and morpheus didn't show up and i think i messed up and i think he hates me but i'm gonna go start this <laughs> bar next door and make sure there's some graffiti that he can find me if he find me you know decides that he's gonna stop holding a grudge and again like narratively that episode has nothing to do with anything right it's like nothing a complete bottle episode but like thematically it's so important because it's you know it's morpheus's and and it, it ties so well into the episode with death where death is like no we're doing this for people like we we work for them in, in a sort of sense and like we need to like not lose our attachment to to human beings and like this like particular attachment in morpheus just like the the growth of morpheus being like yes you are my friend and i was like and then my my heart burst into a thousand pieces um, <laughs> then i finally noticed him yes, yeah exactly and that's so interesting because it is, it flips what we would normally think about a very long life. And it does, it does for a time to kind of take the trajectory that we we assume it would. Where like, especially because he didn't find a life partner within the first couple hundred years. And it was when he, you know, experienced the loss of all of that, that tragedy, that that's kind of you, the point you expect that, you know, you would give up, you would not continue on, you would not want to. And, and it, it brings us like, then what, is it just a, you know, a certain kind of personality that can persevere no matter what? And death is okay with this too. It's like, yeah, I guess I'll leave that one alone. And does this not create an existential crisis for death about like, am I important? Do I matter? <laughs> oh, I think death is like one of the most quietly confident characters in the entire series. Yeah. I mean, she knows what she's there for. Yeah. She has, it's it's very almost yeah. like, it's like Dharma, right? It's about like understanding your role and you can find, you know, fulfillment in like understanding your purpose. And death gets that more than her siblings, right? Because Morpheus kind of struggles. We haven't talked yet about despair and desire. <laughs> the twin, I, which one, I love how they're twins, which makes sense sort of thematically yeah and just uh, everything about it we haven't seen that much of them yet although they're sort of we're, we're building up to more but this idea of yeah the, these beings like the endless that they are in the series that they're, they're they're kind of like super gods like in a sort of hesiod structure they're like these primordial forces like night and earth and chaos and darkness and things like that and so yeah 
what they're all the siblings. So it's like death, dream, um, despair, desire, destiny. And destruction, which we haven't gotten to yet. The prodigal. Yeah, I do like that they are just the opposite sides of the same coin, basically. And they're so very destructive because they Mm -hmm. are extremes, right? Like despair is like the saddest sad that you could ever be. And desire is this like, like this hyper greed, this hyper, you know, want. And I like I love that desire so lives in a good. in like the a, like a, a giant statue of themselves. Heart. Inside. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So I love it. Well, for people who've read the comic, I don't care about being spoiled. So like where do they start to come in and play more? I think Desire's major role was being the one to create this conundrum of the vortex. Um, and we we get hints of a new rule that like if one of the endless kills a family member, then something bad will happen. But we're not, we just get hints of that right now. Kira, I think you're our resident expert. <laughs> oh, that's terrifying. Yeah, so I- I'm rusty on the second volume because I haven't read it in ages. But I mean, on the face of it, Desire doesn't really get along that well with Dream, obviously. And, you know, it- it's very much that kind of sibling relationship where y- you just want to see them fail. And eventually I think I'm desire is going to keep pulling strings in order to kind of like shove Morpheus out of the picture. The dreamborn baby does come back afterwards and being born in the realm of dream turns out to be very consequential. The baby's mother ends up getting involved with fate and they're not entirely happy with Morpheus either. You know, I don't want to spoil it much more than that. Oh, that's um, pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. Especially since I, I wouldn't be surprised if they take it in a little bit of a different direction, you know, for the second season of the show, just because, you know, that arc fits very well in the graphic novel, but with the trajectory of the show right now, I don't see it fitting quite as well. Can I um, follow that up just with why does Desire not like Dream? Because to me, it feels like that's such a strong connection that the things that we dream about are things we desire and is it because in our dreams we get some semblance of like acquiring the things we desire or versus like despair you would think would be more antagonistic or like it's a needed relationship because um when you don't get the things you desire you fall into despair but things Mm -hmm. that might pull you out of despair is desiring something more than that i guess so i'm just i'm really interested in this relationship this antagonism that exists between dream and desire yeah i think with desire it's that like dream keeps acting like an older sibling like mm-hmm. okay i'm older than you i know better uh and desire was like but i'm f- desire baby i mean <laughs> where are dreams without desire yeah like there's that lack of respect that desire is really really cravings you know they they just keep like throwing obstacles up in front of dream in the hopes that like maybe one of those isn't going to stick and they'll get they'll get rid of some hubris that way yeah or not to get like freudian on it i think i would say yeah not not to get too freud but like it's it's maybe a contrast between or conflict between like our waking and our subconscious desires or something like that and like which goes where and like is there actually like you know what we in our conscious daily lives say you know think what we say or think we want and then versus like what our dreams tell us you know what do we really want and this is even as like the this is almost like the plot of like inception right where it's like what do we we want him to to dissolve the company but like we have to get to the underlying subconscious desire of like this want which is like i want to 
be a different man from my father or something like that right, right? right. just like yeah that like the, the 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 intertangled relationship between it's all very hesiod-esque where it's like these things are born out of other things and just like there's sleep and then that sun you know sleeps children you know yeah. dreams um and night and death and, and sleep yeah. uh and it all gets very you know kind of tangled but sorry eli you're about to say something i was gonna say it all seems very like human it's like you know the endless are these big primordial like forces but then they have these like sibling squabbles right and that is so very human in so many ways and i think that really mirrors so much mythology of like you know gods and goddesses who are these you know not all powerful but extremely powerful forces but like hold grudges and are assholes and just do shitty things and like yeah <laughs> dream and desire just having a, a sibling spat and like not being able to overcome their you know feelings about each other in their own familial relationship for like the betterment of the world is so very human and i can't i just it makes me laugh i i think that is the perfect kind of conflict for these forces to have it works so well <laughs> I do like the premise that exists in a lot of stories where like the world as we know it is because we've reached this kind of, I don't know if balance is the right word, but like just a particular mixture of all of these forces like set in a particular hierarchy, but like it hasn't always been the case. And so like bad things have happened and the, the cat, I think that's where the cat episode comes back in where like it can be a completely different world and we'll, we're just not cognizant of it at all because our consciousness creates the beings as they are right yeah, now. Yeah, and, and that's like Dream's kind of little speech to, by the way, that the, the, the cat prophet is Sandra Oh. And that cast, if you read through the cat list of the cat list, is stacked. Like James McAvoy, I think Neil Gaiman is the crow. Yeah. There's all sorts of, it's a very, like the whole cast of this entire show is pretty stacked. Like what, what Dream says to the cat, where it's basically, it's not just that they like dreamed that they were on top. It's like they dreamed of a world in which they were always on top. Mm-hmm. And like, that's like the sort of power of dream that like, you can just literally, you, know, you can't just like rewrite your current state. You can like rewrite all of history and creation with a powerful dream. But then also the Wild. the subplot of that cat's just dream about eating us. And I like right. definitely looked over to my cat. And I was like, he probably does. <laughs> well, I liked the idea too, that it's like the requirement for the humans to gain that world was like only a thousand humans had to dream that to believe like and believe it. And so, and that was kind of the premise of the cats going away afterwards is like a lot of them are still kind of dubious about the whole notion. It's only the little kitten who's like, I believe I'm going to eat a human. <laughs> and- I also just like the, the idea is like, I'd be really impressed if someone got a thousand cats to do anything together. Yeah. <laughs> to do anything at the same time. And I'm like, Can't you say that about humans too, though. Like, coming to all firmly share such one strong belief that it changes the entire world i mean we're pretty good at cults i mean it's, I, ha- yeah. it's, it's happened a few times yeah <laughs> that's true that's true people have definitely believed new world orders into existence uh, for sure sad but true yeah and it exists in their like i mean think about it they have convinced themselves of that to the point like they'll bring about their own apocalypse basically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do have to say that uh, I think anyone who has lived with a Siamese cat will recognize that Siamese is the perfect breed to go around telling everyone else what to do. <laughs> I feel like 
this is the most philosophical conversation we've had in a long time. Like we, we talk about all the time how, you know, movies and media, the the way we retell the story is like telling something about ourselves today and how we've reproduced it. But like, this one's more like, but humanity. But humanity. (laughs) (laughs) Taking it to a whole new level. All right. There was just a couple little like fun fact stuff I kind of wanted to get into unless we haven't had any more deep, big questions. Let me see if I have any other big questions I want to hit people with. Yeah, no, I, I asked all my big, the, the Corinthian and... I like the, the Corinthian of, is it a biblical thing? Or do you just like yes, leather? this is what I wanted to bring up. It's like they ask him all those questions and he's like, all of the above. Like, I don't, like, what, like, this is not the point. <laughs> it is kind of interesting. Yeah, like, he's the Corinthian, but like, what does that, like, mean, right? Is, <laughs> is it something with Paul? Yeah, right. It's about the biblical city yeah. of Corinth. Like, what are you? What are you? What? I think as an academic, I felt very called out by that scene. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I have one other question. It's like, what is the meaning of mouths as eyeballs? I swear, it's just scary. This is my theory. I, just- I yeah. I have two thoughts. One is kind of basically just with Eli, because like it's like a classic like in if we think about what is abject or what's horrifying, it's like things being where they th- shouldn't be, and very often things having to do with the body. So like stuff coming in or going out of the body in ways it shouldn't come in or go out of the body, and body parts being not where they should, and particularly like a lot of abject stuff has to do with like openings. Um, so like and perforations. Things yeah. In your and- face. Yes exactly and so like the current like mouths for eyes like hits all of that you know that's it's so unsettling yes for all of the above reasons <laughs> yes yeah and my sort of more my headier academic is it has to do with like again kind of a frankenstein interpretation where like it does the corinthian want to be human or have human experiences and so he eats people's eyeballs with his own eyes to like see the world through there like he can only live vicariously through his victims he can't really experience anything himself. That was kind of what I was trying, or like how we, and, and I think the, the extra component with it is when he puts on those very thick, dark glasses, like, you know, I think of Daredevil and it's like someone who's blind and like wears those glasses. And so the blindness element of it as well, where if all we have is our mouth to speak and communicate with, and we like just do that to our eyes as well we've lost out out on some aspect of connection between us Mm. yeah i was just gonna say um, i I tend to go a little bit more in the direction of his victims Mm. since they're all young gay men Mm -hmm. and you get that idea of like the eyes as you know the window to the soul and he's like he's seeing them you know as they are like as they're sexuality you know he's ostensibly accepting them for that and then he's like devouring it mm-hmm. almost and i mean personally i have a very hard time not relating it to the aids epidemic sure um mm-hmm. although i mean these days you could put you know any other kind of you know anti-lgbtq plus mm-hmm. um rhetoric in place there and it still works yeah but yeah, I, I think it's that idea of him. It's like you, you think that you're going to have this connection with him and then he takes off the glasses and he's just there to consume you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and there's yeah. nothing left after that. Yeah. And so much of his his 
powers deadliness or you know and if we think of him as almost like some kind of predator is like his alert like he people are kind of instantly attracted to him when they meet him um mm -hmm. he has this kind of magnetism to it which is how he and again it's very there are serial killers that have kind of or purportedly have that sort of charismatic, charismatic mm -hmm. exactly yeah. um that charisma that draws in their their victims and so like yeah he is almost he's like the er serial killer in that sense which is another like i think christy mentioned of, of something just an interesting fact of like just the phenomenon of serial killers is a very modern thing yeah that's what i thought was interesting was this premise that like you know he'd been around for 130 years and like all of a sudden you have this huge collective of serial killers yeah mm-hmm uh my oh gosh where was it my other thought with the corinthian that what horrified me was the moments he could show restraint because he he goes to the vortex i'm blanking on her real name right now uh rose, rose. yeah oh there is a rose and a rosemary oh, yeah. a rosemary and a rose okay so goes to rose's house and like hooks up with her roommate Mm -hmm. but like doesn't get the information so like leaves him like that was an opportunity and like how he interacts and protects rose's little brother and and like to me that that was an added aspect of horror because he can be restrained he can make decisions to interact normally or to you know hit a switch and devour you and it's like that's terrifying because how can you ever really be sure if you're safe with someone or not because they are capable of doing that which is which is what serial killers are and hence why they're terrifying they say it what is it that they say as the commentary is like no working or something like that or no collecting at the at yes the yes and they fashion themselves as collectors that, that's the other like element to, or that it's just a misunderstood hobby misunderstood i think yeah misunderstood <laughs> i almost totally forgot about the end of that episode of when everybody like when dream like he pulls back the curtain or he makes them sort of reckon with their own choices and then they all have existential crises yeah. um which is again like another like kind of terror like it was horrifying in a, in a way like the when everybody leaves the hotel and just everything everyone does which I think was also I was questioning still kind of like what had Corinthians original purpose been, even if it had been corrupted to some extent or gone awry, mm -hmm. is that not only did he inspire these people to behave this way, but he made them blind to the fact that like what they were doing was truly horrible. So they like it was supposed to be a mirror, but it wasn't a true reflection of mm, their yeah. behavior. Interesting. You know, it's it's religious esque right his following has a religious sort of overtone right i mean it, it's almost like he's a nightmare who has the power to give nightmares right but he's making these people you know the protagonist of their yeah. own nightmare they're the ones in charge mm -hmm. and they're the ones that are essentially giving nightmares to other people and when dream comes along he takes that power away yeah which like maybe is not like the best answer to that conundrum right it's like yes these people were doing horrible things but they were also like within a nightmare themselves and so it's like where where we show that forgiveness and like when dream is coming to his like forgiveness realization mm -hmm. i think is also a question there that's i just cute. want to like rewatch the show now i know no, I'm like, oh. yeah. <laughs> I, I watched it like not that long ago <laughs> I watched it while I was sick and I'm like, well, I have all this time now and yeah, gotta get it done. Uh, okay, I had some other just like little fun fact things, but does anyone have any other any other characters we haven't really like we haven't really talked too much about like Fiddler's Green, 
or, or Rose. I don't really have much to say about it. It's just Stephen Fry and a very peak Stephen Fry performance. <laughs> it was perfect. It was exactly what I yeah. wanted from Fiddler's Green. It was so perfect. <laughs> I, I love the house of characters, too. And, yes. like, mm-hmm. when the Raven Matthew is sent out to be like, all right, just look for something weird that, like, seems off. And that whole kind of scenario of like going out with this care you know this house full of characters and going to a drag show and then coming out and like about to be mugged but then this guy in a bowler hat shows up and saves you and it's like it did it played off so like this is so dreamlike and yet it's like also a perfectly plausible mm-hmm. occurrence of events but i like that for matthew's like yeah the, the, this was weird <laughs> another just another like minor shout out just in terms of like a stacked cast sort of tangentially related but the um god i forget his name the pumpkin head guy um oh yeah yeah that's mark uh, hamill mervin. Mm-hmm. mervin yep mark that's, hamill oh yeah that's luke skywalker um yeah gosh of course it is incredible and he has like six lines i feel like yeah mark hamill is such an incredible voice actor though mm-hmm. so good and if we want the dc connection there's another one exactly yeah. Yeah. yes he does mm-hmm. all the yeah. joker stuff Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, not all of it, but a lot of it. So much of it. Speaking of the bizarre, I don't know, the, the one sort of story I've, I've held up now, it's almost an hour 20 minutes, but the one story I really, really wanted to kind of talk about a little bit is the, the Sandman that almost was, where there were all sorts of different pitches going out for Adam. You know, people have been talking about adapting it for forever. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ones that, that sort of almost came to fruition, there's like so many dimensions to the story, I don't know where to start, but it was there was going to be a version of uh so i don't know if, if anyone's familiar with with the character of john peters who's just kind of this like insane hollywood producer not that he's insane just like every, everything about his life's insane because he started out as barbara streisand's hairdresser mm-hmm. and then became a producer so like, would you call him barbara streisand <laughs> let me take a minute Sorry. <laughs> i'll leave now that was the best joke uh, you just won the podcast <laughs> So, so anyways, he he had a contract with with Sony, I think, and then he moved over to Warner Brothers, or Sony let him go to Warner Brothers, but he was technically like there was a breach of contract, so it actually meant Sony had to pay Warner Brothers like some exorbitant sum, like a couple million dollars or something like that. So Warner Brothers was so happy that they in acquiring this producer, they got a bunch of like free money. They said to John Peters, like you can produce any three things, like any any three three IPs of your choice. And he picks the the IPs that he picks are Superman, uh, the Wild Wild West, and Sandman. And supposedly he picks the Sandman because he like saw a sculpture or a drawing of Morpheus and he thought it was cool. Uh, and so a script goes out for the Sandman, and it's like it sounds bonkers. Where it's like there's like a race, like a, a bunch of the characters are like sibling, like Dream and the Corinthian and someone else are siblings, and they're all racing to get all three of Dream's things by like the turn of the millennia. Otherwise. And then if they do, they like win the contest and it's all this like weird stuff. And then Neil Gaiman basically in this interview, he's saying like, I try to be really nice about this kind of stuff, but like uh, someone came up and was like, well, what'd you think of the script? He's like, I thought it was horrible. Um, <laughs> it was the worst. And he says like, it was the worst script I had ever read. Um, oh, it was, no. it was so bad. Uh, and there was a part that involved giant mechanical spiders which is a thing if you're familiar with john peters so like alternatively there's a story um in this like other sort of dimension there's a story that that kevin smith tells 
where he was tapped to potentially write a script for Superman. This would have been the Superman produced by John Peters and Kevin Smith. There's like a long version. You can watch the whole like story. It's, it's, it's quite funny the way he tells it, but he's describing how like he, he writes this Superman script or he like, he gets a bad Superman script. He thinks it's horrible. He tells the, the powers that be that he thinks it's horrible and then gets it so he can write his own script. And then it goes along far enough that he meets with John Peters to discuss this potential Superman movie. And John Peters has like three stipulations that he wants from the Superman movie. One is no cape. Superman can't have a cape. The other one is no flying. Um, so Superman can't have a cape and he can't fly. And Kevin Smith is like, all right, interesting. Um, kind of puts me in a box for Superman, but like, all right. And the third thing is that Superman has to fight a giant spider in the third act. Um, and I'm just like, like, tell me about the spider thing. And supposedly John Peters goes like, well, like spiders are the deadliest predator in the war. Like he, he just is obsessed with spiders. So he tried to push the spider thing for Superman. He tried to push the spider thing for Sandman. Um, and then eventually he got Wild Wild West. And lo and behold, in the third act, a giant mechanical spider shows up. Yep. <laughs> um, so uh, that, I just like, I had to just get that story out. Because I'm just kind of, because when I learned about this aspect of Sandman, I was like, that John, Pe- it's that John Peters, the giant spider guy. <laughs> John Spider Guy. Oh, and I also I also forgot part of the reason that that project got shuttered also because Neil Gaiman leaked the script to Ain't It Cool News, <laughs> and he was just like, yeah, like Marty. it's so it's so bad, like almost like the world needs to know. <laughs> uh, alternatively, with this salmon, I know like one of the big things that happened with the comics was Lucifer was such a cool character that like once Lucifer pieces out from the Sandman storyline. Um, he gets his own. And I'm like, I would love for Gwendolyn Christie Lucifer adventure on well, just the Well, that adventure happened already. It's the Netflix series Lucifer, the 20th Yeah. Oh, gosh. Also, very, very good. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. I might just have to switch switch it up. Yeah, it's about Tom Ellis as Lucifer. So mm-hmm. I haven't um, seen. You recommend? Yes, I love it. Very much like tall, dark, and handsome sort of stereotype, but okay, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, everyone's supremely hot in the show. It, it's Beautiful one of those shows. It's a good reason but, to watch any show. Can't just be. Yeah, yeah I mean the cool the character shows. development and like kind of the interpersonal relationship between like Lucifer and his angel siblings, and eventually God shows up. Uh, and of course, Lucifer, um, he's moved to LA. He owns a nightclub. Of course, he does. Of course, yeah. But then he joins the police force as a murder case consultant because he's super into punishing people. Naturally. <laughs> so he wants to catch criminals. But he can't get past his own ego. So like every single case ends up being like this moral reckoning for him. And he goes into therapy, which is amazing. So <laughs> yeah, I don't want to spoil like any more, but I would definitely recommend you watch it. It's a great show. I also think that's um that's why they brought Mazkeen in to Sandman. Oh, she doesn't yeah. show up in the graphic novel, but she's like the only other one there. And of course, she's a really big character in the Lucifer Netflix show. Different actress, but um, same character, though. And I, I would love for, a, is it Joanna? Joanna? Joanna, Joanna yeah, Constantine. It's like, can we get more of her, please? I'm totally okay with this gender bend of Constantine, and I want her more. Latin was so good. It was so <laughs> wonderful. It was so, so much good. fun. <laughs> Constantine is such an interesting character, too, just in terms of, like, the various lives. I mean, unless we all forget the Keanu Reeves Constantine. Yes, of course. We will, because I don't know. That might be getting a sequel. Oh, okay. 
and he shows up in I want to say the the Arrow or the Flash like those series like there's a John Constantine yeah. in yep. those mm-hmm. um, that's a little more sort of like kind of like the OG Constantine where he's like the blonde chain smoking. I'm reading a, a web comic one where Zatanna and him both end up in London, England, but it's during the height of the Jack the Ripper murders. Ooh. And um, I'm enjoying that. that to me? That sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's on um, it's on webtoons. So okay. we mentioned um, Ed- Edragan, uh, another mm-hmm. great DC character, but the Swamp Thing run by Alan Moore. There's two volumes, I think, but Alan Moore's Swamp Thing is excellent, and Constantine shows up in that, as does Etrigan. Cool. Swamp Thing's great. I'm, I'm very pro Swamp Thing. <laughs> uh, he was also in Harley Quinn recently, right? Mm-hmm. Not to spoil too much, but you find out that Swamp Thing is not a man who turned into plants. He is plants that assumed the consciousness of a man. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All of this to say is that DC is killing it everywhere except for the films, where they, like, maybe once in a while squeak out a good one. <laughs> and, and it's always, like, a, the weird exception. It's, like, there's, like, the first Wonder Woman, and the Shazam is, is not bad. And, and I enjoyed Shazam. I like Aquaman... I didn't. I know people liked it. I wasn't crazy about it, but Aquaman had some success. I don't know. But then there's other ones like there's like a Black Adam movie that I'm looking at. That like, looked. I mean, I'm do, I do love Dwayne the Rock Johnson. I will watch the Rock in anything. Yeah. Frankly, fun fact: I am technically the Rock Latin teacher. Oh, sweet. Do tell. tell me more. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I I don't know if you all have like seen a movie called Red Notice on Netflix. Yes. Yeah, it was like were... maybe the most popular movie or something for like a minute. I haven't seen it, but I it's, yeah, it's um, I they were supposed it. to have an entire Latin scene in there, and they hired me to do the Latin for it. Oh, oh my gosh! Yeah, so I, I've done done a, a couple um, different projects, but they brought me on for that one because I had also done Conjuring Three, and there was supposed <laughs> to be the yacht scene at the end where uh, Gal Gadot and The Rock are in the Mediterranean or something and they're making out and then Ryan Reynolds shows up and the rock and gal start having this conversation in classical Latin oh, about cool. like robbing a bank and heist. Oh my gosh. And they had to cut it because the filming was so far behind. Like I got there at 9 a.m. and we were supposed to start filming like maybe around one o'clock and I left at 10 and they hadn't even started yet. Oh so my at that gosh. point they were just like we gotta cut this we'll just do it in English. Mm-hmm. so wow yeah but um i had made recordings of the latin translation and sent it to production who sent it to Dwayne. so technically, technically. <laughs> i am his latin teacher claim oh, to cool. fame is we've named a rock after him in our dig in gotcha <laughs> oh that's great <laughs> you didn't get the moment to like to like to the rock's face be like it's sell way not salve or something unfortunately like i didn't get to meet him uh they stuck me in the production office all day mm-hmm. um it was covid protocol so oh, yeah. i was basically yeah. in there until he called for me and he didn't want to run through stuff in this trailer but i, I know for a fact that he got the recordings so nice amazing that's pretty cool yeah that is it, really any chance cool. you, you did the loki for the tv show when they had to go to pompeii oh that was uh katrina dixon actually um okay. at emory although um i did uh work with her and um, Cassandra Casillas on One Division. Nice. nice. So, yep. It's the benefit so of living cool. in Atlanta. Yeah. Oh man. 
No kidding. Yeah, that's so much fun. Now I'm just thinking about all the Latin that I've like seen in a movie recently. <laughs> the one we keep coming back to, Eli and I, our favorite is in what Thirteenth Warrior. Yes, <laughs> so oh, good. I, love that movie. I just remember like Rex Mortuus Est or something yes. like that. It's like. <laughs> Well, because they start in Greek, right? And then yeah. they're like, okay, wait, yeah. no. Yeah, hey, Gimona. And I remember you used to go around and say, like, where is your Gimona. Yeah. <laughs> so this, this is a good, actually, I think a note to maybe we can close off on. So Kira, we'll start with you. But do you have a favorite on-screen depiction of Latin? Um, hmm. You know, I can't think of one, really. I mean, there's some that I like just because they're really front and center. Um, I like the Latin inscription in, uh, I think it's the second wonder woman movie actually no i take that back i do have a favorite one yeah uh, it's in uh velocipaster oh my gosh <laughs> yes yeah oh my the God. the uh the catholic mass in latin in velocipaster uh is so bad and it's purposefully bad but it just it, it hits that note really well and then it like segues into you know, the car crash with car crash VFX printed all over the screen. And yeah, if you haven't seen that movie, highly recommend it. Not to give away too much, but it's about a pastor who is a velociraptor. <laughs> yeah, he um, he is a pastor. He gets um, cursed um, to turn into a velociraptor. Uh, and there are ninjas involved. Of course. Uh, yeah. I think the, the, the creator, the, their next movie is Outback Dracula. Yep. Yeah, it's a kind of a sequel, kind of not. But uh, Brendan Steer is—he's fabulous. He's a genius. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, Christine, Eli, any f- most or least favorite Latin? I mean, I—I I didn't study the languages to the extent that you all did, but like, I have a favorite. I've shown it to Lige, where mm-hmm. it's a TV show called Greek, and it's all about actually fraternities and sororities at a college but one of my favorite characters named cappy it's like this character who never graduates and he like always majors like he changes his major all the time and he gets into a latin off with some guy at the bar he's like oh i once was a latin major and they just start quoting latin at each other i imagine very poorly but oh i kind of mean they were just quoting so it's like the quotes were fine but it was like it was funny yeah. it's like that scene in tombstone where they're basically just just spouting off like idioms or or, yeah, yeah. or like well, little phrases at each and other like, kathy it wins by doing um what if a woodchuck could chuck wood whatever but in latin then i'm like well that seemed impressive i don't know if that was correct but it seemed impressive <laughs> i remember like one of my very favorites of course, as like a Latin teacher and like that I remember from being a Latin student is the life of Brian when he paints the mm-hmm. graffiti. Um, when, 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 I was, when I was at, <laughs> did I send you this picture? When I was at Masada, if you go down to one of the cisterns, someone has written Romanes. You did Domus. not send me this oh. picture and please send me this picture immediately. <laughs> I'll send you this picture right now. Uh, I mean, that's just such a classic. But I also remember in that same class where I first like saw or I first like talked about that graffiti like in a grammatical setting, which was so much fun. Um, they played like a Mr. Bean clip of Mr. Bean at Hadrian's Wall, like just speaking Latin. <laughs> and I like I found it a few times before, but I don't really know like what it's from or where it is. But it's just delightful and very silly and mm. so great. And I have a a very random third one is that in the TV show 30 Rock, Kenneth 
occasionally just like says a sentence in latin well kenneth is immortal as we all know yes no he's like an immortal time being and he just like starts speaking latin one day um and it makes me smile every time Uh, I already said mine. I think mine's from the Thirteenth Warrior. Where they have a whole. My, my metric is basically like if I can understand it, then that that's a plus for. Uh, and that's one more action. Like, oh, I actually know what they're saying. Uh, <laughs> Romanes aunt domus. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, I think I'm. I think we're we're we're, we're hitting the we're hitting the yeah. zone. Is there any, any other final remarks, thoughts they need to get out there before we? put an end to this dream i'm excited for season two and where lucifer yeah what what's coming with lucifer Mm -hmm. Uh, it's coming with everyone yeah mm -hmm. i hope we see a lot of returning characters yeah just excited for more vibes all the vibes Mm -hmm. (laughs) of all the monsters in the entire series the man who threw a sack full of kittens in water was by far the worst no redemption for that man eternal nightmares Nope. nope. Eternal yeah. nightmares, hundred percent. Mm-hmm. Nope. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, <laughs> on that note, <laughs> <laughs> the worst. Well, sorry, sorry, yeah, I'm sorry. Ah, yeah, I'm Our little fur babies. Mine are passed out oh. already. So. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, on that note, um, again, Kira, thank you so much for for joining us. If people want to find you on on the internet or social media or anything like that where can they do that yeah uh they can find me on twitter at flavian sophist and um yeah i'd also like to mention uh editor volume that just came out women in classical video games i have a chapter on hades by supergiant in there and and we have a lot of thoughts like i love hades oh my gosh we should talk sometime i love it so much but yeah just dropped so it's hot off the press a lot of really really good articles on games in there good stuff all right and again yeah thank you so much um as usual you can find us at moviesweddig.com or follow us on social media at dig movies or podcasts are available on uh stitcher spotify apple podcasts all the major stuff uh as we get into this sort of new season we are going to be trying new things and, and including a sort of not a limited series but a sort of special episode series we are tentatively titling extremely strained and incredibly forced uh where our guests sort of pitch different uh classical reception interpretations to us um and so we're going to be coming back next week with one of those with a returning guest Ayelet Heinz Lushkov in the meantime thank you all for listening and you know like review recommend us all right thank you everyone and bye bye, bye.